The following class was held at Redeemer Community Church. For more information about Redeemer, visit us online at RedeemerNC.org. One of our goals about this topic in four lessons, next week, John Evanson, the next week, I, I bring it up again, um, talking about the mistakes that you try to ought to probably avoid. And then, and then uh, Adam on the fourth one. Each week gets a little bit more practical. So this is going to be very much more theological tonight. But um, I want, we want to shape your thinking. Everybody that's listening to me right now cares about the will of God. I know that for a fact. And I've heard that. You care about the will of God. So that's just a fantastic start. The thing is, is that what's happened over the years is a lot of little kind of baggage and sticky things have kind of attached to the concept of the will of God that probably need, you need to get rid of them. Plus, there's probably, you're, you're headed in kind of like a, like a northerly direction about the will of God, or, or, or the will of God to know it, to understand it is up north, but you're kind of often traveling northeast or northwest while you seek that. And I wonder if we could just sort of recalibrate our compasses a little bit. That's what our goals are. So probably not a whole lot brand new, but trying to shape your thinking. And hopefully you will also, in your disciple-making help people understand, because that's one of the things you want to do. Now, one more thing about summer series, we have so many new people, is, is that it's, it's, I wouldn't say it's wide open, but you are allowed to ask questions and interrupt and ask me to repeat something or elaborate on something. So that's, that's okay. Now, I say that, and I really do mean that. So please do that. If you have a question, just raise your hand. I don't see, for some reason, all that well. So a really wide waving will be a good thing, all right? So we're going to get started. Look at, look at what um, some of these big ideas I want you to get. It, it comes out of, the will of God comes out of his character and perfections. I mean, that's really the origin of the will of God in all of its manifestations, whether it's a, a little itty-bitty piece of information that he's going to give you, or it is the grand picture. It's coming from God, particularly his perfections. And the, the thing about that is that it's always good. Now, I know that, I know that you're just sort of hearing things like that because you've gotten 20, 30, 50, 60 years of, you hear a preacher say something and then like you dutifully nod your head, but the will of God is always good, right? And I have to say that because it doesn't always feel that way, correct? The will of God doesn't always feel like it's good, but it must be good because it's coming from his unchangeable and perfect character. So sometimes when you're experiencing the will of God, and it's not pleasant, you could stop and think about that. Here's another big idea. It can be partly known. Obviously, we have the Bible, for instance, and we really, really want to emphasize that. But it's also partly not known, and won't know, you won't know fully while, while you're here on this earth. And that's why it is frustrating, because we're trying to make decisions, or at least we think we are trying to make good decisions, and we're afraid. We, the Christian life travels with a, quite a bit of fear and anxiety. Am I making the right decision? What should I do? I really want to know the will of God. Not often do we really want to know the God is God, will of God as much as we say we do. But anyway, that's our bent, and a lot of things we're never going to know. Or, and we won't have the surety or certainty that you're looking for. It has a lot to do with faith, too. It's also frustrating. And then it's ultimately summed up in Christ, which may not be your intuition, but we need to drive that at the end of these notes. And that's why our focus must change. All right, so here's the first thing. It's the expression of his eternal character. And just remember this, then, that God is acting out of his being a king. And, and this is important because he's not acting out of being a judge. God isn't, he is a judge, but his relationship with you is, is as a king and, and many other metaphors too. But remember then that a king 
a king and king's will will favor his people. In other words, God's will for your life is a good thing because it's a good king. And so he's working towards something in what he's doing in your life that's, that's really a good thing. It's just often painful. And so he's a benevolent king. So think about this. Here's Psalm 115.3. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Are you okay with that? Psalm 115.3. He does all that he pleases. Here's Daniel 4.34-35. Speaking with Nebuchadnezzar for his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. Heaven and earth, that's general Hebrew sort of phrase for meaning everything. That's the sum total of the universe. God has his will. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Have you, have you done that before, though? You've said to God, at least maybe in your mind, subconsciously, what, what have you done? I can't believe you just took that away from me. I can't believe you're so silent. I don't know what you're doing. How can you do that? And Daniel, and this was Nebuchadnezzar that figured this out, is saying, like, this is, no, no one gets to actually say that to God. Um, don't do what you're doing, God. I'm questioning what you're doing. You don't get to say that because God is the king. Here's another thing. His will is, is irresistible too. This is very, very problematic for unbelievers who are trying to figure out what we're saying about God. It's also kind of hard for Christians too. Here's Job 23, 13. But he is unchangeable and who can turn him back? What he desires, that he does. And then Romans 9, 15, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So his will is irresistible. All right, I'm going to ask you three questions in a second there. Do you have any questions about that picture of God that we need to get before you go further down the road about understanding and knowing the will of God or asking him to tell you what his will is? Do you understand that? Any questions? All right, now look at these three really, really deep. This is, a the this is theology tonight. And we have a plan, some sort of a plan to go further in that direction in the coming years, not just in summer series, but more, more on a sometime outside of the Sunday morning service. But anyway, this is theology, right? Here's three questions. Every Christian needs to grapple with this. Ready? What does God know? When does he know it? Why does he know what he knows? It goes from easy to hard. Let's do the first one. What does God know? Somebody answer the question. Everything, okay. Now, what do you mean by everything? When you say everything in this way, do you literally mean everything? God knows everything, okay? So that, what's, what's the theological term in one word for that character of God or nature of God? Omniscience. He knows everything. Now, that's not disputable usually among Christians. And unbelievers will also say, like, well, if God does exist, that would probably have to be true. Because one of the questions we want to ask is, if it wasn't true, if, in fact, God only knew almost everything, we would question things like, well, what, would, what is the dividing line between knowing something and not knowing something for God? What caused this, this, this set of things that he doesn't know? What is true about them that he wouldn't know them? Something has happened that he has access to all of this knowledge, even if it was 99%, but not into the 
something out this other part, we would want to ask that question. It doesn't seem like that would be possible. It seems like that would be a weakness of God, and therefore you would say God couldn't be God. All right, so but we're all settled on that, and I knew we would be. Now here's the question: when does he know it? When does God know everything? At all times. Does that include um, past, present, and future? All right, so, so how many of you are agreeing with what Jess just said? Say that in a different way, too. Excellent, Jess. What's another way of saying when he knows it, when does God know everything? Before he created anything, before time began, before everything, all right? So now, now hold on, now you guys better grasp this, if that's true. God knows everything before he's created anything at all. What are the implications of that? Think about it. The third question, why does he know everything before it's occurred? Take a time out right there for one quick time out. Let's do some deep theology and philosophy here. It's called theological philosophy. Ready? One more thing. Um, does, does the future exist? Does the future have existence? <laughs> Did some say kind of? It's already decided, but it, he's decided what he's going to do, but does the thing that he's going to do but hasn't done, hasn't actually happened? So, so if it hasn't happened, so sometimes people said like, wait a minute, how, how could God know something about the future if it has no existence at all because it hasn't happened yet. That's an interesting thing to, to think about. Another form of theology that we think is bad, and I need to know it beforehand, and if you'd come and tell me that you're starting to believe it, so we can not beat you up, but have a strong word, so it's called open theism, where the future is open even to God. We certainly know the future is open to us because we just don't know what's going to happen next. But the future is even open to God. Now, this is what they say. These theists say God is so powerful and knowledgeable that he knows almost everything that's going to happen. In the same way that you know your children so well that in a given situation, you know what your children are going to do in this situation. Except for God knows he's so much smarter than you. He even knows even almost 99.9% what you're going to do, but not one-tenth of a percent. He still doesn't know. So, so he's sort of traveling through time, experiencing things with us, not knowing exactly what's going to happen in the future. And so it's all open. Now, that's captivating to a lot of people. Now, I know the way I said it right there, you're not which is good. I don't want you to be moved or persuaded, but believe me in its full form. It's marvelously persuasive and terribly heretical. All right. Why does God know everything before it happens? He's out. Okay. Well, how... What? He, oh, I like that better instead of saying something about time because that's so hard to talk about. He's, he wrote the story. Okay, all right. So this is, a, now just, just listen to this, you guys. God doesn't know everything and therefore doesn't know the future because he has a crystal ball. Omniscience with God's sovereignty is not, I can see into the future. That's how I know everything. He 
formed the future. Everything that is ever going to happen is already predetermined by God. Because if you deny that and come up with a couple things that are not predetermined by God, then you have to tell us what what category did they fall into that God was not able to determine that? Now, there's a, a wide variety of emotions that, that come up to you in, in that. There's lots of them, you guys, and we're all with you on this. Like, all right, so that means he knows ahead of time who's going to be saved and who's not? Yes. Wait, 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 wait. Why does he know that? Why does he know that? Because he can see into the future? No. He ordained it. Why should I pray if he already knows? Is the answers to your prayer already ordained, even before, not only before you prayed them, before you even existed? Yes. Why should I pray? That's a question. Now, we're not talking about that. This I can tell you why, but we're just not talking about that. A whole bunch of questions start going in people's mind. But for you to have a really, really robust view of the will of God, especially the sovereignty of God, will help you actually not discourage you. Okay? So God's not making decisions based on his knowledge of the future. He determines or ordains the future. God, you guys, God acts, doesn't react. And so there's, there's uh, one-fourth of Redeemer who thinks that the reason why you're elected is because he looked into the future and saw Look at that, Eddie Shavola in whatever, 1995 is going to accept me as Savior. Therefore, my reaction shall be to choose him. But God, listen, God doesn't react. Yes? Right. I know, it's, but it's not so easy. But, but a lot of people think that the decision is, is, I wrote it in the book because I looked into the future with my crystal ball and saw that you were going to do that. By the way, can I just throw one hand grenade out, a small hand grenade, let it explode, you'll enjoy this. But because God does not react, he only acts, that's why he does not have a sense of humor. And I'm not being funny. I'm not joking. Think of what humor is. I'm not, I'm not saying that, that he made people humorous. I'm just saying he doesn't have a sense of humor because the humor is a reaction to something and God <laughs> doesn't react. Okay, I just love, I love it, Adam. I just love dropping these things. All right, here we go. Number two, Roman number two, it covers everything. It covers the just and the unjust. So Matthew 5, 45, he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. So God is having his will on unbelievers as much as he's having it on believers. Unbelievers who are not recognizing him are still experiencing the determined will of God. Just remember that. It's even involved, when I say it covers everything, even the minutia of life. And here's some things that, that the Bible is indicating to help us to see that. Matthew 10, 29, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. You have a completely different view of sparrows, but they're little teeny birds that could be used for eating for extremely poor people or for sacrifices or something like that. They're really, really cheap. Nobody cares. It doesn't make it. You could swat one with a fly swatter, except that God cares and knows. Uh, James 4, 13 through 15. 
Come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we'll go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you're, you're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say this. If the Lord wills, we will live and do this. If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. I love that phraseology that's in English, this or that. It's basically saying all of that stuff that you're thinking, I'm going to do, and there, it wouldn't be something that's too small. Just, just remember to say, if it's the Lord's will, I will do that, because God is involved in the minutia of life. So again, we ask this question, how could there be some area of the universe, like if you say God, it's God's will is only involved in the big things, then I want to know about that dividing line. This, for some reason, God doesn't have any power or ordaining or, or, or influence on it. How did that happen? That's a limitation on God I'm not willing to accept, okay? It covers everything, not just the minutia of life, but even random, random events, events, which are in quotation mark. So you guys use that word, right? And we all know what you mean. Like, well, by coincidence, I saw Russ Duncan at the sheets getting a, uh, some iced tea by coincidence, right? And we, we, we know what we mean by that. By chance, you know, or, hey, good luck. Good luck on your thing. I hope that we don't really believe that, but we know what we mean by that. But the Bible has kind of a different take on that. Yeah. Right. Yeah, okay, we, we have way to, yes, yes. Yes, yeah. So that's an important thing that I'm trying to make. But there's a, something at the very last conclusion that, that uh, brings up what theologians have done to try to clarify something. Thank you, though, very much, Andrew. I, re I really mean that. Look at, I love this, um, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. I know it seems like Las Vegas is a place where everything is, is luck, good or bad luck. But, I mean, I, isn't it great that God's not tired to get, bit, you know, just get exhausted by Las Vegas? for probably a number of reasons. But anyways, every single time somebody's throwing the die or picking a card or shuffling the cards, he's got that all preordained. Amazing. 1 Kings twenty two thirty four. This is so good. Remember this story? But a certain man drew his bow at random, at random, and struck the king of Israel between the scale armor and the breastplate. Therefore, he said to the driver's chariot, turn around and carry me out of the battle for I am wounded. So this is one of those things, and I'm sure maybe some of the military men, I don't know if this is, you know, when you're, you just start firing your gun and hoping a bullet's going to land somewhere, you know, and I think that's what you do in war. I mean, sometimes you're certainly aiming at somebody, but sometimes you just shoot at random and, and at random and, and, and one person gets hit, you know. A, a hand grenade goes off in a group of men or women or something like that, and this one and this one and this one are killed, but these, this one and this one are not killed, and... And God's ordained all of that sort of stuff too. Okay. Uh, finally, and this is so important because we need to bring people to this. You know this, but Peter was aware of this in Acts 4, 27 through 28. For truly this city, Peter says, this city there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So the greatest sin, the greatest tragedy, the greatest death, the greatest payment, the greatest horror of all of the universe is Christ. And that was all Peter understood 
pre-planned and predestined to take place. That's the worst. The thing about when the Bible gives you the worst as an example, then everything above it, not quite the worst, must also fall in that category too. Three, it will be done. And it will be done on earth too, by the way, as it is in heaven. You remember that in the Lord's Prayer, Matthew 6.10. So, but its purpose, you guys, is is in salvation, is from predestination through glorification. So many of you, including um, Beverly, reminded us that to have your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundation of the world, as before the foundation of the world, it was determined that Christ would die for us. Then that's the predestination, and it goes all the way to the end. And let me just say those, for this for everybody who continues to struggle, I have great sympathy for you. I mean that sincerely too. With election, the goal of that doctrine was to encourage you that, that you're secure because the person who is predestining you has got the whole plan together and he's, it's impossible to fit. So he's, he's predestined you and he'll call you, but it goes all the way to glorification. It's, it's always one big package and there's nothing that breaks it in between that, so that you will fail. And that's, that's what's happening with the doctrine of election. It's supposed to encourage you. Just remember that. So look at this, Ephesians 1.5. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Then a few verses later in verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And by the way, if I can just stay on a reformed topic again, so that's why the reformers, and I also agree with this, believe in irresistible grace. That's the eye in tulip, the famous tulip thing. Total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement or definite atonement, irresistible grace, and the perseverance of the saints. Irresistible grace. Now people say back, wait a minute, I, I, that can't be true because I was, when I was first hearing the gospel, I was fighting it. I absolutely believe every word of that. But are you saved now? Yes. Okay, well, then you didn't resist the grace to save you. What about unbelievers who are fighting, fighting conviction or fighting God or fighting the gospel and they successfully don't believe him and go to hell? But that wasn't, they were not receiving the grace to save them. They were receiving conviction, however that came upon them by the Holy Spirit, but all that has done is to judge them. The grace of God to save you if you're saved, could not, is not, was not resisted. That's why you're saved. Because when you were dead in your trespasses and sin, of course you would have resisted. You were resisting. But now you're not resisting. Why did you stop resisting? Because you're good? Nope. Then it must be because of his will and his grace, which is irresistible. That's what we mean by that, Okay. Um, now remember this, you guys, its goal in history is the, crea- the goal of the will of God is, the crea- is creation to the new heaven and earth. That, that's, its whole, that's the whole, history is going somewhere. That's another great question you can ask people. Where is history going? Where is history going? It, where he wants, and tell us, tell us where it is that he wants. What's the end point? Okay, with him in the new heaven and new earth. It's going that way. And so it shall happen. Now, one of the reasons why I bring that up is because when you realize where you are in the story of God's will, 
and this is the big picture stuff, it starts to make you realize what you get overly concerned about, about the will of God. I'm trying to make all these decisions. I don't know which is the right one. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. Nothing wrong with you for thinking that. Nothing wrong. But in the big picture, the will of God is headed in that direction, and you are too. To be back on this planet, but it's a new heaven and a new earth. So keep that in mind that however you're experiencing things, God's going to get that done and you're going to be here. And that's actually comforting. So here's Revelation 21.5, just to pick out one verse. Um, he who is seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. So, so I mean, think about it. Picture salvation as a bus ride. You know it's God's will to get on the bus because that bus is going toward God. You are, you are called to get on the bus. Tons of people at the bus stop. Some get on the bus. You did, because his grace is irresistible, because the will of God will happen. It was the will of God for you to get on the bus, and you got on the bus. And so the will of God then when you're on your bus is for the bus to go where it's going to end up, and you will be there because you're on the bus. Now, what we're concerned about, and I think this is fine, is to say, but while I'm on the bus, what am I supposed to do? Well, let's make up some things so my analogy is not such a complete joke. Um, give your seat to a old person, your seat to a sick person, give your water bottles, be kind, be good, blah, blah, blah. That's what you're supposed to do on the bus. But God has already told you what his will is actually on the bus. But keep in mind that you're headed in that direction. And when you feel like, I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing all the time, just at least do remember that, that you're headed in that direction. And so now, but you can stop and think like, what should I be doing on the bus of salvation as I'm headed toward the new heaven and earth? Well, John's going to talk, John Evans is going to talk more about that. I will, and Adam even in particular, if we get more and more practical. But we're headed toward the Bible, obviously. Then, so remember this, it, it's primacy in prayer. Remember that, that, it, is, that it is known, it, it, knowing the will of God is secondary to doing the will of God on earth. We're, again, consumed with knowing it, but, but do it. So remember the Lord's Prayer. God, may your will be done. Have your will to be done here, now as it is happening up there. That, that's what you want to pray about. That, that's a primary thing in prayer. Not, Lord, show me your will. That's secondary. Primary is, God, have your will on earth as it is in heaven. That's what Jesus taught us. Four, it, it means are inscrutable, which it now, here we're getting a little bit closer to something that, that Andrew was introducing to our mind. This is inscrutable. Un, this is just hard to understand. And we, have, we, we theologians, I mean, you guys have been thinking about it for a long time. It's fun, kind of fun to watch young people who have a very, very limited, this is why I love teenagers. They, little children have a very limited view of the will of God. Um, but then when they start to think, and I, I'm, I'm looking at some teenagers now, and then they start asking questions like, well, wait a minute. You know, if, if what everything Pastor Don just said in this brief time is true, then how come, and this is usually what, so how come a bad thing happened to me? If God is sovereign, how come bad, that's the first one. That happens sometime in middle school, or maybe even in late elementary school. Then it, that, that graduates to, how come a bad thing happened to my grandmother? Now they pick out somebody that they know is better than them. So that they begin to think when you're in middle school, you start to thinking like, well, I actually is, I'm kind of bad. My mom and dad just don't know how bad I am. So, 
but my grandmother's really, really good. She's perfect, and why the bad thing? And then it goes to, what's the third one? Why does a good thing happen to a bad person? And then it goes like that, and so then you guys are supposed to be able to have answers for all of those questions as best as you can, but the, the, the will of God is a bit mysterious. So it includes, it's done through sin. God's will is done through sin or through the actions of sinful mankind. He God accomplishes it through the things that he has told you are not his will. Don't do that. You did it, and then he made something happen, and he knew you were going to do it, and he made it all happen according to his will, right? You remember this. I know everybody's thinking of Genesis 50, 20. No, just somebody just... You meant it for evil, God meant it for good. Right? God did something good, Joseph says, with my brother's sinfulness. All right, um, John 9, 3. Wait, John 9, who is that? Who's that? The whole chapter's on one single healing, the whole chapter, one man. Who is it? The man born blind. And what did the disciples say? Jesus, who, who sinned, this man or his parents? We narrowed it down to two. The, di, the dilemma. That's what, that's what we always do. God, I'll give you a choice. It's either A or B. And we never think that it could be choice C. And so Jesus says, no, this is for the works of God to be manifested. The works of God manifest. That sounds like a really good thing. Here's a question people will ask. If you're interested, God, in getting your works manifested, why can't you do it some other way? Why do you have to do a man born blind? It seems so mean. It's done in, quotation marks, free will. I mean, the will of, the, the will of God is done with human beings' so-called free will. God does not force people to disobey him. Okay, mystery, That's a mystery, guys. See, it's done through the prayers of the saints. God has decided to accomplish much of his will by means of the prayers of his children. And this is just the same thing as that God has decided to save people through the preaching of his word, through your witnessing. We all know God can just snatch people out of their trespasses and sin and save them without, without using you. We know that, but he has chosen to use you. And so you can ask the question, well, what if I choose not to witness to that person? Shame on you. Right, we'll, we'll just have to see what happens, but if God's determined to save them, then God will save them. But all of that, even your disobedience to witnessing is a part of the ordained will of God. So the same thing with prayer. God is ordained for you to pray. It is his will for you to pray. He has not told you whether he's going to answer the prayer or not, but it is your, his will for you to pray. So, and that's how he does lots of his things. Probably, since all of us are awful prayers, he probably does 99.9% .9 of everything he does without prayer. That's, that's what I feel about him. But... He has chosen to say, I'm not going to do this until you pray, Diane. Now pray, that's my will. Diane prays and then he does it. Or she prays and he doesn't do it. It was still the will of God for her to pray. Even though he knew ahead of time he was not going to answer that prayer. That's not that complicated, you guys. Talking to your father, even if he looks at you and says, I'm loving every minute of this. You're talking to me finally. By the way, I'm not going to give you an answer to that prayer. But keep talking. Because I love you, and I want you to talk to me. That's why you pray when God says no or whatever, if he says no. Okay. Uh, number five, it's partly but sufficiently re uh, revealed. And so here's a couple really familiar th things. You know this, 2 Timothy 3.16, and that's sort of what we're doing right now and in the summer series. We're just sort of correcting, training, 
uh, instructing the church ourselves in righteousness. And the Bible, actually, Paul really says in Timothy, the Old Testament is sufficient for that. Certainly with the New Testament, it is very, very sufficient to show us what's the will of God? How do I please God? How do I get to heaven? Same thing with Peter. In Christ, we have everything we need for life and godliness. That's one of the main reasons why we're proponents of biblical counseling as a major part of of our disciple-making. Although it may not be everything, it's a major part. But listen, finally in the end, we're, we're back to this inscrutable nature of God. It's just mystery, and that's just the way it is. It is, you guys. Romans 11, 33 through 36. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever. Amen. Any questions there? That last phrase in Romans eleven thirty six brings us to the last point. I said, or Paul said, for from him and, right, from Christ, from Christ are all things. Do you know what that means? Do you think you know? I, I, I'm not, that's not a trick question. Do you think you know what Paul means when he says, from Christ are all things? I would say, yes, you do. You think that all things are from Christ. What about this phrase? And through him. Paul says, for from him and through him are all things. Do you know what it means that that all things are through Christ? Would you know what that means? They can't get to me unless they get through him. Maybe maybe the word through, which is, that's not a Greek word, that's an English word. Maybe it's, it's the word because of. All things are because of him. Would you know what it means then? I think so, but what about this one? To him are all things. What does Paul mean when he says, for to Christ are all things, to him be glory forever and ever? He's the center of everything. And keep going. Right. Okay, but so you said four, but what about the two part? Can you elaborate on that? I think this is worth meditating on. I don't think this is so easy. But this, this is how I think, you guys, I just want you to picture this. Just if, if, it, if you picture it as in a bathtub and you pull up the plug with the fill with water and you just watch that, the water swirl around as the whirlpool goes down there, or if you picture a funnel and the entire universe is in the funnel, it, it, it's all going toward Christ. It's all going t- to Christ. Listen, everything's going to him. All angels, and they will be judged. Satan, our archenemy, is going to Christ, and he will be judged. Jesus owns hell. It's not a million miles away to him. It's just right here. He owns it. He owns hell. Every single soul that's in there. And so thus also the lake of fire. Every angel, every person, dead or alive, every Adam, it all goes to him. It all, he, all, he, he captures it all and says, just in case you had forgotten, this is mine. It's always been mine. 
It's mine. The whole thing is going to it. Now, Paul tries to get us to see this, especially in Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians, but it's not so easy. But I want you to, this is why I've been telling you for years, slow down in your Bible reading. Just slow down. Read the Bible through one time in a year, and then don't ever do that again. I'm just kidding. You can do that, but slow down. Listen, Philippians 3.10, that I may know him, Paul says, in the power of his resurrection, I may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. I, I, I've got more knowledge of him even at the resurrection. I, I, there's much, much more to know about him, so I've got to be thinking more about that instead of the minutia of God's will for my decision-making. Here's Ephesians 1, 21, 23. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. Oh no, you know what that means? If Jesus gets everything... What do you get? Everything. Remember what Paul said, why are you guys doing lawsuits to one another right now here on this short time on earth? You will judge, say, you're going to judge angels. In Christ, Christ has everything and you're going to have everything with him. It's it's unbelievable. He put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So see that, that Ephesians 1.23 is one of those verses where when you're reading in your devotions, you don't read any other verses and you don't keep going. You stay for an hour trying to figure that out and meditate on that. The fullness, Christ is the fullness of him who fills all in all. And then Ephesians uh, 3, 8, through, to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Oh, they're going to find out what this whole thing is about. It's about Christ. This was according to the eternal purpose that he realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. And then, all right, that's enough. Okay, Colossians 1.19, for, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Everything that, that the Bible has ever said about God, especially in the Old Testament, we just keep come to find out the clarification of that is actually in Christ. Not, not that, not that one, one person gave it, gave it all up and gave it to the other person, but when we're trying to picture God, he said, like, I know that's a hard thing. I cause people to just shake in their boots. Here, look at Jesus. That's me. I can look at Jesus. That, that's why it's all summed up. Okay. So the, my point here is this, is, is this causes us, all of us, to refocus our attention on what we, what we know Christ wants and less on what we want or want to know. In the matter of the will of God, in my conclusion here, I'm saying, what we all need is just to, just to refocus a little bit with the consuming with, should I marry her or marry or her, or should I not get married? Should I be single or married? Should I buy that house, or should I sell this house? When should I take this job? Should I take this raise? 
Um, it goes on and on. How should we do schooling for my kids? It goes on and on and on and on. And, and those are not bad questions. Those are not bad questions. But I think what God wants for us to, to do is get things in order first and say, do you not understand that the whole shebang is about Christ? He will have his will to be done. And so just fall in line with that first before you start asking the little bitty questions of life. He wants something about you first to grasp that first before you start asking the endless questions about what's the will of God for this and that, okay? Here's my conclusion. The will of God is a grand narrative already fully written, and it has a beginning and an end. It includes everything that has ever happened, all things happening now, and everything that is to come to pass. An important subset of this narrative is what we call the moral will of God. It's not a Bible term, but it's a, it's a good term to, to help us to see that. The moral will of God, that which God mandates for human obedience. In other words, this is my word, do it. But which they freely and willfully disobey. The will of God includes or ordains the sinfulness of man. The fall of man in the garden, the fall of Satan, all ordained by God. Not caused by God, but ordained by God. That's a part of his will. It's important to know that the many smaller narratives within the grand narrative, but to always be mindful of the story as a whole. So that's what I'm just saying, that while you're in the middle of the, all these things that are going on in life, um, when you can catch your breath and tell the kids to be quiet, somebody get those kids and tell them to be quiet so you can have a, a, a moment of quietness with your coffee and say, what is this story that I'm in? The Bible has told us, it's a grand, glorious thing. It's summed up in Christ. The whole point is Christ. And you're, you're swept into it in a glorious, wonderful way. It's a wonderful thing to be swept into it. And that ends up being a whole lot more important than like what's going on in my life and I'm so discouraged and I don't know what to do and that sort of thing. Any questions? Okay, this is what I want us to do. I want you to get in little circles. It won't, it won't take long at all, I promise you. Just little circles of three, four, five. If you get in a circle, I want you to pray clockwise for the person on your left to understand what we said tonight about the will of God. Say their name. Say their name because God loves to hear his children's name and because his children like to hear their own name. Circles just just move. It doesn't. The, don't worry about the noise. Don't worry about it. the kids are about to come here. Just spread out a little bit. Or if you want to get right there, that's fine. That's fine. Little circles. Ask, ask for this person to understand the will of God better. Thank you for listening to this class from Redeemer Community Church in Fuquay, Verena, North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this class to give to others. But please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more classes, we invite you to visit us online at RedeemerNC.org.